yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area, the following program is produced with an artistic vengeance by Magic Matt Allen of the Outlaw Radio Network. By the way. By the way what? Our studios are spectacular. By the way, oh, we, we're getting feedback from somewhere, and uh, so someone watch your, well, I don't know, do something. Do something. And let me play with this. Okay. That felt good. I am the legendary Burl Bear. Yes, the you are. Over there. Howard Lapidus, manager to the star. How's the star doing? Good. Good. Everybody's good. Got uh, Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker, hidden in the corner with a microphone we try to keep down as much as humanly possible. Uh, much to my chagrin. And mortification, I might add. Yeah. Speaking of mortification, uh, remember that old TV show with uh, Richard Carlson, I Led Three Lives, about Herbert H. Philbrick? I was a communist for the FBI. No. You don't remember that, Joe? No. No. Oh. no. That just well, ruined my a, whole setup. You asked a question, and you <laughs> expected a positive answer. So watch this. Yes, go ahead. Well, we have a similar situation today on our show. I don't know how to phrase it. I was an asshole for Richard Nixon. That's going to be the title of the new show. Wow, that was uh, <laughs> that was well done. Thank you. Well, nice to make a guest feel welcome. <laughs> Martin Kelly. Mr. Uh, Kelly, what a strange and unusual life you have had. Well, I... I would certainly say being an asshole for Richard Nixon puts me in that category. Yeah, certainly. Can we and, quote and you on were, that? were you alone there, by the way? <laughs> oh, he, he wasn't by himself. <laughs> no, I didn't think so. <laughs> they had a whole cadre. Yeah. 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 Well, in case people don't know who you are in, in our audience, uh, in fact, our producer had never heard of the Iran-Contra scandal until I brought it up one day. So... <laughs> <laughs> uh, you got a bright team there. Yeah, we do. We do. Yeah. Uh, but you certainly set the standard of the industry. <laughs> <laughs> well, not, my, maybe a substandard would be a better way to put it. Now, what I'd like to know is what sort of sociopathic upbringing did you have that made you a prime candidate, pardon the expression, to do dirty tricks on behalf of Richard Nixon against the uh, Edmund Muskie, etc. But by the way, that's the only question I had for the day. That was it, huh? Yeah. No, okay. no, but I really want to know. Well, that's good because that's the only answer I have. <laughs> okay. Great. We're well, on the same ahead. page. Ta-da. Yeah. You're right. on stage now. Well, I was a I was a military brat. My dad uh, was a World War II fighter pilot, and as such, we moved around a lot. I was born in Japan on a military base and went to Germany, Texas, Alabama, Wyoming, Florida. And um, so probably the first time I ever felt like I might fit into something as disgusting as Dirty Tricks <laughs> occurred uh, sort of as a practical joke. We were stationed at Homestead Air Force Base south of Miami in the mid-60s, and our phone number happened to be one digit off from that of the base motor pool. And my dad kept calling, saying, would you please change your number? It's driving us nuts, and they wouldn't do it. So whenever alone in the house and a call came in from some bigwig asking for a call, I'd pretend to be an airman at the motor pool, and even at age 16, my voice sounded like an adult. So this guy would call up, this is Colonel Williams from the Pentagon. I need a car delivered to the visiting officer's quarter immediately. I'd say, yes, sir, I'll be there in 10 minutes. 
minutes later, the phone rings. Hey, this is Colonel Williams. Where in the hell's my car I requested? I'm going to be late for a meeting. Oh, sorry, uh, Colonel. I had to take a dump. I'll, I'll be right over there. <laughs> I'd then hang up, and the next call, Colonel Williams was not saying Merry Christmas to me. No. So uh, at that point, uh, I guess he figured out he'd dial the wrong number. And rather than being sympathetic, as I should have been, about the poor souls undoubtedly getting their bucks chewed out at the motor pool, I kind of got a kick out of it. And uh, that's sort of <laughs> probably where I had the mindset when someone like Donald Segretti came along and dangle the offer of being involved in these silly things came up. How, how, what were the crossroads? How did he just come along? What, what happened? Well, he, I, was, I was actually recommended to him by two people. One of them was an advance man for Nixon back in 68. Uh, and uh, so he got that, and then he was in Tampa, and it lined up this guy named um, Bob Benz as one of his other dirty tricksters. We were kind of the three main culprits or characters, you might say, uh, Segretti, Benz, and myself. And Ben's, I knew through the Republican channels. I was a college Republican chair, and he recommended me too. So that's how I'm. That's why my phone rang, and Segretti whispered that he'd like to meet for lunch. And uh, that's when he went into his his whole uh, elaborate scheme about who he was, because he never quite divulged, of course, what he was up to. How did he open that up with you over the water and the appetizers? Well, uh, first of all, he's only about five two. And uh, when he first walked up, I thought it was somebody who was going to offer to shine my shoes or something. I had no idea (laughs) what was about to unfold. But he he spoke in whispered tunes as if maybe if I had a tape recorder, it wouldn't pick up what he was saying. But he said his name was Donald Simmons. He was from a wealthy family, graduated from Harvard, and was, I understood, negative campaigning. And I'd already been involved in some campaigns, and I knew that, you know, just like negative political ads have more impact, unfortunately, than positive ones. I said, yeah, tell me more. And uh, and that's how it started. He, he, he led me on for a couple of months. He called once a week and would have a chat or two, and nothing really happened. And during that time, something unrelated to Segretti came up involving negative campaigning with Carl Rove. I'm sure you heard of Carl Rove. Yep, yep. And uh, Carl at the time was uh, working with the a National College Republican Executive Committee or something relating to CREEP. CREEP was a committee to reelect the president. And he called me one time, since I was college chair, and said, would you do a prank for us, go to the University of Miami, where I attended, McGovern's going to be speaking, uh, and, uh, no, Muskie, Muskie's going to be attending, and get pick up a tape recorder and go tape record his answers, plant some questions in the in the crowd, then send me the tape. And I ended up doing that, and that's kind of how I sort of just fell deeper down the rabbit hole, you might say, and was was kind of uh, more open for Segretti's suggestion going forward. Mm. Why was McCluskey a target? What was it about him? Well, Muskie was at the time the leading contender in the race for president to run against Nixon in 72. And so by the fall of 1971, he had taken over the... The, uh, the the leadership in terms of the polls. He was the front runner uh, to oppose Nixon uh, in the general election of 1972, which wouldn't come until a year later in November of 72. But until then, they had to go through the primaries, the Democrats, just like they do now in various states in order to win the nomination at the convention. So their their target, they had a big X marked on the back of uh, of Muskie, and they they were they were focusing on him, and that's why they sent me 
to, to the U of M rally to uh, spy, if you will, on what he's saying and to tape record it so that they could find out what his answers are to a crowd in Miami as opposed to what he says to a crowd in Seattle or Denver. Et right. Yep. Play to the crowd. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. That's kind of a basic political strategy. <laughs> Tell the people what they want to hear. Yeah, yeah. We're bringing well, back coal any minute. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. But, you know, back then you could get away with it. You know, you could get away usually because the press wasn't as nationalized. You didn't have any of the, obviously, you didn't have the Internet broadcasting what someone said five seconds ago or even uh, why they say it. And you could tell somebody what they wanted to hear in Nebraska and someone else what they wanted to hear in, in uh, New York and just shade your answers a little bit and try to appeal to them. But uh, uh, that's what they were trying to do with him then, which you can't do now. Well, it's, I, would, I would beg to differ. It seems like that seemed to have been working pretty well during the last political campaign. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear you have to beg to do anything. But, uh, <laughs> I, but I listen, you ever been married? <laughs> I, I understand your dilemma. So yeah. <laughs> So once you got into it, it probably seemed like great college prankster fun. Well, you know, I wasn't a complete moron, just a semi-moron, and I, I recognize that Segretti probably had high contact in the White House, that he wasn't doing this from a rich family standpoint, uh, and that he had the expenses flying around the country and whatnot of probably an organization uh, such as... Uh, a political party or the White House could muster. So, what, uh, what tipped you off to that? Well, um, what tipped me off to it was really the, the first time we did something in Miami for a rally that Muskie was holding. And uh, Don was, again, using the pseudonym Don Simmons, checked into the hotel and would have meetings, and, and I would ask him, you know, what really is going on here? And he would just sort of say, uh, uh, I really don't know. But after this is all over, we'll sit down over a beer, and I'll, I'll let you in on what's going on. So he didn't tell me, which was probably a good thing for me, because, you know, months later when this whole thing broke, I ended up, get, ended up getting immunity from prosecution in exchange for my testimony because uh, I, I only knew so much. Yeah, well, just enough to, uh, to get you immunity. Well, exactly, exactly. The first time I went before a grand jury in Tampa, I just took the fifth. I had an attorney friend, and I just took the fifth, and so they had to reschedule it, the grand jury, and uh, grant me immunity, and then that immunity had to also be granted by the Senate Watergate Committee with uh, John, Judge John Sirica. He was a Watergate judge back then. And um, so they knew nothing, uh, literally nothing. When I went into the grand jury room, they basically said, uh, what did you do between January and March of 1971? What did you do between April and June? And I would recite what I did. They 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 were pretty much clueless. Hmm. They dropped John and uh, shocked and thunderstruck. Yeah, well, pretty much. I mean, I was really freaked out. Here's a college kid going into a grand jury, and of course, your attorney can't go into a grand jury room with you. You're by yourself, and I'm expecting all this, uh, you know, all these shots to be taken at me and people to be frowning and looking at me as if. Uh, you know, I just shot the uh, uh, the Pope or something, and uh, instead they were all laughing hilariously at each one of the pranks I was relating. <laughs> <laughs> so, Remind us of uh, what you were doing. Uh, well, um, for instance, in the um, the Florida primary uh, on on uh, the primary day, which is 
you know, where in the headquarters, especially in Florida, was very important. Wallace was expected to take the state because of his anti-busing stand, but the real race was to see which other Democrat could come in second. So Florida was a huge state pivot in a pivotal sense. And so the main headquarters in Florida was in Miami. So we wanted to disrupt the activities in the headquarters. And what I did is I called uh, pizza companies, chicken companies, liquor companies, uh, floral arrangement companies, and ordered all this COD to arrive uh, at the headquarters, and they'd be paid and they'd get a nice tip. <clears throat> and then I also printed up flyers for a free buffet at the headquarters if they brought the flyer. <laughs> and uh, you'd get a chance to meet Senator Muskie and his wife. Of course, they weren't even there. So they get all of these um, poor homeless people showing up at the headquarters with this flyer, and they're looking at them like, what the hell is this? <laughs> and then someone's delivering 100 pizzas, and then someone's delivering 50 boxes of chickens, and then floral sprays and arrangements, and it's absolute pandemonium. And on top of all that, uh, I had taken some of those flyers and dropped them off at the Lindsay headquarters. John Lindsay, of the mayor of New York at the time, or just retired, was also in the race running for president. So I dropped them off at their headquarters at 4 or 5 in the morning and stayed until someone showed up and they took them inside. Then I called the Muskie headquarters, spoke to someone and said, look, I really feel bad about this. I work for Lindsay and I, I don't like what's going on. And if you come to our headquarters, you'll see what I mean. And sure enough, a car showed up with a big musky sign on top of it, and they went inside and obviously saw the flyers, and they blamed Lindsay for it. Oh, so that's kind so, of the strategy is to get all the Democrats thinking the other Democrats did it. Exactly. That was the thing. You're not really going to influence votes because no one really knows what you're doing. Uh, passing out a few flyers or whatever doesn't affect the outcome of the vote, but if you can get the candidates backbiting and blaming each other for dirty tricks and whatever, it becomes harder for them to unify after the convention and to mount a more concerted effort against Nixon. That was the whole premise. What a nasty bit of business. <laughs> yes, it was. It, it, was it, it, dirt, it was dirty. It was a dirty bunch of dirty tricks. I, I went into a musky press conference with an overcoat, uh, and I had in one pocket two mice, and each one had on its tail a ribbon that said, Musky is a rat fink. And in the other pocket, I had a finch, and I went into the press conference and surreptitiously left, let, let them come out. And, of course, the bird immediately goes up to the window and starts flapping around, and the mice are running around, and people are scooting out of the way and screaming. And uh, it just totally disrupted the whole press conference. And Muskie's looking out like, you know, he had a real short fuse. His face turns red, and he's spewing and sputtering, and his head's wagging. And, and um, uh, you know, I, I later inform them that somebody from the Humphrey campaign pulled that off. So um, they were thought out. These weren't things, you know, just just planning a stink bomb but, or something. But, but was, they would buy that. You would just say it's uh, the Humphrey campaign and next. Yeah, yeah. Pretty, pretty, pretty much it'd be phone calls. You know, it would be uh, uh, anonymous phone calls is the way it would be done. Otherwise, you can't be grabbed and questioned and... Right turned over to the police or what have you. So uh, it was always phone call stuff. Who was the uh, plot mastermind? Was it Segretti? Well, he 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 uh, came up with some of them, and then I came up with some ideas, too. Uh, I don't think Bob Benz did as much. Bob, again, was in Tampa. Um, but 
I came up with the stink bomb idea. I had a friend who was going to Florida Atlantic who majored in chemistry, and he came up with a concoction called butyl mercaptan that made... Oh, that's the worst smell of stuff in the world. Oh, it, it makes a turd smell like a rose. I mean, yeah. I'll tell you, it's, it's bad stuff. And uh, so we would use that, and Muskie had a picnic in Miami, and we went around and sprinkled this stuff all over the place and by the barbecue pit oh. and uh, passed out flyers for that to all the hookers where they hung out in town offering <laughs> a free, free uh, barbecue. So um, these, all these things are going on, and pretty soon they realize that they're being sabotaged, but they had absolutely... The last thing on their mind was that it was the White House, the Nixon people pulling this off. They figured it was people they were running against. My favorite, were, my favorite yeah. bit that you pulled off, uh, you sent a, lo a lovely young lady to his hotel. I did. I to, did. to whose hotel? Muskie's. Okay, and yeah. then what happened? Well, I went to the University of Miami. I was, I was in college there, and one day I'm standing at the bulletin board, you know, where they have the little things pinned up about rooms to rent and stuff, and the, this really buxom blonde in a sweater and shorts, and she was just gorgeous. I was looking up, and she was very forlorn, and, you know, I'm a horny young guy, and I say, hey, you know, it should be nice if they pin $10 bills here to the board instead of these notes. She said, yeah, I could really use some money. I said, what, what's up? She says, well, my boyfriend lives in Gainesville, and uh, I don't have any money, and I, if, if I, I need to get a bus fare, to, and he's broke. <coughs> and uh, I said, well, I have an idea. And, of course, I knew that Muskie was going to be in Gainesville in about two days, where the University of Florida is. So I said, i tell you what, who do you, who do you like for, for president? I said, oh, I, I, I'm, for, uh, I'm for McGovern. I said, perfect, perfect. I said, well, we want to play a little joke on, on uh, Muskie, because I help McGovern here locally, too, and it would Jeez. be really great. I'll give you 20 bucks for bus fare. If you will go up to Gainesville, I'll tell you what hotel he's staying at, and just take your clothes off and streak right out in front of his hotel and yell, I love Muskie. I love Muskie at the top of your voice, <laughs> and that's it. So, uh, so you, gave her sure you gave her 20 for that? Twenty bucks. Well, bus that was fare. back when twenty bucks was twenty bucks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 And you know, a bus fare to Gainesville for Miami was only like eight bucks then, so she had some lunch money <laughs> left over, I guess. I didn't think. I told Segretti about it. We knew she wouldn't do it. Said, ah, God, we blew that twenty. So, so be it. You know, it's not going to happen. And uh, and she had said, well, you know, I'm not going to hang around. I said, no, no, but you know, we figured there'd be reporters hanging out, you know, and with with the candidate with Buskey. So she arranged to have a friend, I later found out, I ran into her months later at, at U of M. She had a friend drop her off right near the hotel. She unclothed, ran out, ran I Love Muskie, jumped back in the car and took off before they could get pictures. But the reporters reported on it. And it was in the paper the next day. And so uh, it actually happened, much to our surprise. And that became one of the funniest things, I guess, at the Watergate hearings. <laughs> Senator Montoya said, well, I guess you knew the young lady quite well. And <laughs> the chamber broke up in laughter, and I said, unfortunately, no. But uh, When, when uh, it was the, the 20 bucks here or there, where was that money coming from? It was coming from Segretti. I was getting initially 150 bucks a month, uh, plus reimbursement on any costs for printing or expenses that I may have engaged in. Uh, there weren't many. Um, and it all came from Segretti, and I would get an, on, an envelope with cash in it mailed to me. <clears throat> and uh, after the convention, I was supposed to go up to 700 a month, 
and uh, the money was coming from a slush fund that was being kept by Herbert Kalmbach. He was the personal attorney for Richard Nixon, and that's how Segretti was getting his pay, and all, any expense money was all through this Nixon slush fund. So this came right out of Nixon's office. That's correct. The whole the whole thing started really from Nixon. Uh, he I don't know if you ever heard of a guy named Dick Tuck, but Dick Tuck is famous if you if you Google him and it's it's Dick and then T U C K. He deviled Nixon all the way back in the 50s when he was running, and he would play pranks on him. And Nixon, when he got elected, said, you know, I'd really like to have a Dick Tuck type operation. And he told Haldeman about it, and Haldeman turned it over to Dwight Chapin, who at the time was the appointment secretary for Nixon. Well, Segretti was an old USC Trojan college chum of Chapin, and that's where the connection happened. He got Don involved. Don had just gotten out of the Army as a, as a uh, <clears throat> junior, um, what is a JAG, J-A-G, yeah. I forgot what it stands for. But anyway. Judge Advocate Segretti, General. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Segretti went for it. And then I was told to recruit some people who could be operatives and help them out. And uh, that's where the money all came from. The 20 bucks that I gave the girl, uh, I ended up getting reimbursed from, uh, from Nixon's slush fund. <laughs> so Nixon was buying hookers. <laughs> well, she wasn't well, a hooker. She was just a... Uh, she was playing one on TV. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> how, how old were you guys then? Well, I was, I was in my senior year of college, so I was like 21. Okay. 21-ish or so, and I was attending college there on a golf scholarship, of all things. Okay. And I uh, got involved in politics and worked my way up through the party as a college kid. And what? And, uh, uh, what was your not. What was your goal once you you crossed the line into this? Oh, what, what well, I was happening? I was given the impression that I would be put through law school at Georgetown University, and the White House appointed me to a advisory committee for the Department of Transportation in the meantime. It was called Youths, Y-O-U-T-H, Youths, Order United Toward Highway Safety. Youths. <laughs> What's youth. a youth? It's a youth. <laughs> yeah, but, but you know what it basically was? It gave, it gave some of his high income, uh, some of his big donors a chance to send their kid to Washington and to New Orleans and to different places for these meetings and we were going to advise on how they could best appeal to young people. It was a it was a crock. It was basically a bone they were throwing to big donors and people like me who were helping them. Hmm. So now, it was a perk. of all the dirty tricksters, I mean we we should definitely mention the fact that you do have a book. Uh, yeah. <laughs> dirty trickster corporate spy. Um, you don't see a lot of books coming out by guys such as yourself. Uh, well, that's the only one. That's the only one. There's only 3 people who testified before the Senate Watergate Committee on Dirty Tricks, me, Segretti, and Bob Benz. Those are the only three. There were other people involved or who did things in one case or another or got a few bucks to do this or that, but we were the main operatives. Is uh, Segretti still with us? Yes, he is. He's still in California. I'm still in touch with him. We're still friends. Um, he stayed in my house here in Florida. Uh, I've stayed in his house in California. Um, and um, so I, I, he, he still is. He's still practicing law, bankruptcy law, mainly in California. <laughs> For the morally and financially. In the in the Los Angeles area? Yes. Oh, you better go talk to him. Yeah, let, let's see if we can get him on the show. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it'll be news to him because uh, I think he was going to write a book, too, so I think I beat him to the punch. The, oh, there you go. So <laughs> there goes the pal thing. Yeah, yeah. You rat. Well, you ratted I'll, me at out. I'll, <laughs> at least I'll get another book sale that way. <laughs> yeah, you'll buy one. <laughs> You're darn right. Yeah. <laughs> That's Absolutely. the ultimate. Put as many names in there as you can. Guarantees yeah. the sales just like write a newspaper article. That's, that's true. Well, I, read, I wrote a couple of books before this one, but they weren't related to uh, Oh, I noticed it's, uh, you know, like uh, fly fishing in Montana. <laughs> well, actually, well, it's fishing in Florida and uh, Alaska. Yeah, I did a book on Florida and Alaska about characters, uh, chapters, separate chapters, bios about people who helped advance recreational fishing and hunting. But this is, I thought, I've been thinking of doing this for a long time, and I finally did it, and and after after Watergate, I was very contrite when I did when I testified. I realized I'd made some bad decisions and it was stupid. <laughs> and I got Pardon involved. Me for in laughing at you. And I got but you're, involved. You're, you're, you're testifying at age 23 or thereabouts, yes. right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So a child, and it was, less. Well, you know, I, I I was no doubt about it. Overly ambitious. It was it was really stupid. What political future I had? You know, once you get the big W branded on your forehead. It's, it's like an albatross around your neck. You can forget it because people are still talking about Watergate. I yeah, mean, we're talking about like, it right now. We're talking. <laughs> you know what? You're right. <laughs> but uh, that's good that we are <laughs> to help but, the book. Uh, I got I got into corporate security after that, which I guess is ironic. But uh, it still involves spying of sorts. I was spying on employees for for client companies. Uh, in a variety of ways, and uh, that's part of the book too, and that's actually quite engrossing. Uh, talk to, talk about my, that. What kind of ways? What did you do? Or what do you do? <laughs> well, I offered a variety of of, of services. I, I was a polygraph examiner and interrogator. I did mystery shopping, which is where you pose as a, as a regular customer and you go in and check on attitudes and service and things of that nature. And then I was uh, an undercover investigator where I actually worked in the workforce of a company and meld into the uh, situation to see who's, you know... Who's, who's naughty and who's nice. Pretty much, yeah, uh, exactly. And then my specialty became uh, technical surveillance countermeasures where I actually looked for clandestine listening devices and telephone taps and hidden cameras, and I did that internationally and had some pretty pretty well-known celebrity clients along the way. Like Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin? Dean Martin, uh, Bob Hope, um, Frank Sinatra. Uh, Who's going to wiretap Bob Hope? They're trying to find well, out if he writes his own jokes? I mean, what's the point? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, a lot of this was pr just like Dean Martin didn't even want to do it, but he was, Frank Sinatra was, a, was kind of the the, the uh, leader, you might say, of the pack. And Chairman of the board. Yeah, even though Hope wasn't involved in that, somehow he convinced Hope that it would be a good idea to see if anybody was listening in, and mainly the press. That was what they were worried about, and they, they were worried about things being said or done that they didn't want the public to know about. Not, not necessarily illegal or who they're having sex with, but uh, <clears throat> whatever, their, whatever their concerns were, they were paranoid enough to want to have... Uh, have their their house or their office or their car or their airplane check. So I did that. And uh, did so you I, find uh, anything? Well, I found lots of bugs over the years. I didn't for I didn't find anything for Sinatra, Hope, or or Martin. 
um, but I did find them uh, for different companies such as airlines, uh, the Miami Dolphins. Um, I did I did work for the U.S. Navy, the uh, IBM, AT&T, uh, Martin Marietta, some contract defense contractors, <coughs> and uh, on one occasion. I ran into the CIA uh, unexpectedly and got them mad at me. Oh, good. Tell me that story. <laughs> well, uh, we had a client in Kingston, Jamaica, that was involved in accounting. And so they, they did most of the accounting work <clears throat> for most, most of the companies in the country. And therefore, the CIA wanted to have economic info on a lot of these different clients, So, as it turns out. So anyway, uh, we, uh, I go down. I find three listening devices. And I told the client, I said, look, there's three things you can do. You can do nothing, or you can feed false information into it, uh, or you can try to trap whoever's doing it. And do a counter-surveillance and see who's coming in to change the batteries or right. watch who's coming to a meeting or what have you. So I get back to Miami. My secretary rings and says, hey, there's a couple of guys here who want to see you. I said, who are they? He said, well, they said they'd tell you, and uh, they don't look too happy. And I said, oh, God. Okay, so they come into the office. They sit down. The bigger of the two uh, looks at me sternly and says, uh, you took some property of the U.S. government, and uh, we've got to see how that's never going to happen again. Mm. And I could only surmise they were talking about the Kingston job because I hadn't found any devices uh, lately uh, before or after that scene for about, about two months. So I said, what do you have in mind? He says, well, from now on, when you have an international debugging sweep, you need to tell us who they are, and if we have devices there, we can pull them out, and when you leave, we'll put them back in. <laughs> and I said, hell, I can't do that. I said, I've got client privilege, just like an attorney. I, and, and, and the big guy says, well, we can find out whether you like it or not. And so I, did, I was not a bit intimidated. I said, I have a better idea. You give me a list of all the devices you have all over the world, and I'll notify you if one of them is my client. Ah, that's smart. <laughs> they, weren't, they weren't too forthcoming. So attorney-client no. privilege with a lot of these guys has expired because they've expired. So correct, talk correct. to us about some of those guys, and you know the list I'm talking about. Well, uh, you're referencing, again, the celebrities, or are you talking about the drug dealers? Let's, let's stay with the celebrities because that's who people care about. Dean Martin was... Uh, like I said, when I showed up, he was very um, not not put off, but he said, "You know, this is a waste of time. I kind of I'm just doing it to get Francis, as he called him, off my back." Martin um, was extremely nice. Offered me Doritos. He was eating out of a bag of Doritos. He was in a robe and sandals, and um, he had played golf earlier that day, so I guess he'd showered or whatever. But he was tanned. And uh, was just like uh, as good, a, nice a host as you can imagine. So he led me up to his office on the second floor, shut the door, and says, "Go, go to town, do what you need to do." So his desk was a big clutter. There were there were papers everywhere. It looked like he was really unorganized. So I looked through everything. I saw his address book. I thumbed through it, and my God, he had the names of everyone who was ever a Hollywood star in it. Um, but I just, you know, I didn't write anything down or put it, whatever. I just noticed it. And afterwards, uh, I came out and I motioned him outside because I don't want to tell him inside what about the sweep, just in case there's a device downstairs, which wasn't likely. So he walked out to the front yard, and I told him about it. He says, "I knew it. I knew this was a waste of time." 
And um, he said, you sure you don't want to come in and eat something, have a bite to eat or drink or something? And I, I'm, I'm really tempted. I mean, what, how often do you get a chance to sit down with a superstar and shoot the breeze, right? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I said, you know, I do have a plane to catch. He says, well, he says, I got a, I've got an appointment, but I'll get my assistant. And I said, no, just, just drive, have someone drive me to the airport. So that was him. And, uh, of course, he died about 10 years later. This, was, this occurred in the, I think, early 80s. 83, 84. Sounds like a heck of a nice guy. He was unbelievably nice. I was just taken aback at how hospitable he was and friendly. Even though he poo-pooed the whole idea of doing this, he got talked into it. Sinatra was was quite different. He uh, he was out by his pool when I came, was let in by a security guy. And he was in uh, swing trunks and whatever, and I could not believe how frail and bony. He looked like a total wuss. I mean, I was, <laughs> he obviously wore elevator shoes and had padded suits and everything when he was in public because he looked like a complete uh, nothing. I don't think he could have weighed more than 120, 25 pounds. Oh, okay. Frail, bony. Anyway, he had those piercing blue eyes and uh, that intimidating nature. So we went over on the, the far side of the pool where there was a, this was in Palm Springs where he had a place, and it was right. barren out there, and, you you know, we could have seen if anyone was observing. He liked sitting there because if there was any paparazzi, he could spot them and then just go back inside. But So anyway, we talked there, and I said, you know, I really loved uh, some of your songs. He says, hey, I didn't pay you to come out here and listen to your bullshit about my song, <laughs> my singing, or my career. Just Just cut the crap, kid, all right? I said, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> so he, he, he said, uh, I want you to co- come in place. I want you to look for devices. And uh, he said, you know, let me tell you something, pal. If you, if, you, if you plant something and pretend like you found it to get more business from me, it'll be the last job you do. <laughs> and I said, I can, I can assure you, Mr. Sinatra, you can, give me, you can administer a polygraph test to me afterwards, whatever you want. If something's there, I'll find it. If nothing's there, I won't. He says, all right, well, let's cut the small talk and go do your frickin' job. Said, okay. <laughs> so he, he, was, uh, he was not too friendly at all. So I went in and uh, did the sweep, and he had electronic devices everywhere. His bedroom was, was all, all cut at, uh, uh, what is it, top of the art? State uh, of the art. State of the art, cut, cutting edge. Electronic. Everything was push button back then. It was a TV came up, a bar would rise and fall. Uh, you know, all, he had cameras in there where he could see everything around the place. He was paranoid, and, then, and he still had a security detail full time in another room with all these cameras. But he still wanted to look too. And he had devices and toggle switches where he could listen in on different rooms. <laughs> he was more of the spy than any, anything else. So anyway, afterwards, uh, I gave him the report. I always walk in with a piece of paper that says, don't say anything to me about the sweep while I'm in your house. So I had already done that to him, and he nodded out by the pool. And we went back out there, and I gave him a report that everything was cool. And then he, he lightened up. Then he lightened up. He didn't talk about his career and, you know, his hopes for the future and any of that small talk. But then he was friendlier and a little less guarded and, and, and uh, tough, tough-sounding. Mm-hmm. So he says, well, I'll tell you what. He says, I'll, I'll, I've got some friends. I'll fix you up with some more jobs. And I thought that was just being nice and shooting the breeze. But sure enough, he did. Huh. And he, he set me up with Dino and set me up with Bob Hope. And um, um, 
And then one day I got a <clears throat> call from his henchman. Uh, a guy <laughs> who, oh, he was definitely a big, giant guy. He was, he was about six five, three hundred and something pounds, and and, and, and very intimidating looking. And uh, uh, obviously his uh, henchman, I, I, I definitely would call him that. He called me. I'm in Miami. He called me and says, "Look, Mr. Sinatra wants you to conduct a polygraph test on him." And I said, "Well." I suggest you have somebody from California do it because it's going to be very expensive to fly me out there just to do one polygraph and me fly back, a hotel room and all that jazz. He says, no, he wants you to do it, and actually you don't even have to come out here. I said, I don't follow you. He said, well, his wife Barbara is always accusing him of screwing around, and he wants a polygraph test to show her that he's not. And if you could just send a polygraph test saying that you did the test and he cleared, you'll, you'll get paid whatever you need to get paid. And, wow. and I said, I, yeah, I said, no, nah, can't do that. Sorry. And that's the last time I ever heard from somebody. <laughs> hey, tell you what, we're, we're, we're talking to Mark Kelly, dirty trickster, corporate spy. That's the name of the book. We'll be right back in 60 seconds with more Inside Dirt. Drinking, interrupting obsession with you 24 hours a day on any phone or device. And it's all free. Just go to your friendly app store and search for Outlaw Radio. Then look for the red letters on the sign with the bullet holes in it and download it. It's free. Listen free on the road, in your car, at the beach, or in your backyard. It's all free from Outlaw Radio. Back to True Crime Uncensored. I've heard of that show. It's a wonderful program. Yes, With is. Burl Bear and Howard Lapidus. There we are. Yeah, you're Howard. I'm Burl. That's Mark C.G. Boyer. Uh, Martin D. Kelly, author of the new book, Dirty Trickster. Featuring Mark C.G. Boyer. A corporate spy. Boy, those corporations are spying on each other like crazy. Yeah, they keep tabs of everybody. It's uh, it's legal, but uh, I think if everybody knew the breadth and extent of it, they'd be very surprised. Give and us uh, and give us a little taste of the breadth and the and depth the, of this and the extent. Uh, okay. Well, I worked undercover, for instance, for a company that was doing real estate data, and they did plat books and things like that, and they put me in there because they. They thought somebody was stealing drugs, so I got in there. I was working as a custodian of all things, and after a while, I knew who I, I located the person who was doing it. And um, the whole objective within a few weeks is to figure out how you can get closer up to people like that and find out. So I let it be known that I wouldn't mind smoking a joint or buying some coke or whatever. And it got back to this one guy named Amos, um, and one day he said, "You want to go out and?" the parking lot so i went out there with him smoked a joint and um he said you want to buy some stuff i said well yeah I, I, i'll i'll buy something for you so we set up a deal to buy two hundred dollars worth of uh marijuana and i reported it back to the miami police department we met with the the, the cops there and the narc and um, he looked apart i mean he had all the accoutrement and dress and you know, tattoos and everything else that made them look like a darn druggie. And the deal was they were going to furnish me the money. I was going to do the drug buy in the parking lot. And um, 
So we set it up, went out there, met the guy, and all of a sudden, in the bushes, I hear this thud and birds flying out of the bushes. Mm -mm. <clears throat> so that kind of spooked us. And then uh, we kind of got over that, uh, and, and uh, I, I, I got in my car, I mean, he got in his car to pull out of the parking lot, and then the two heads come up out of a car, and they go directly behind him. I'm talking 10 feet behind this guy's car. And Amos sees it, and he starts going around in circles in the parking lot with this cop detail right behind him in the parking lot. Meanwhile, I look up, and there's a freaking helicopter about 300 feet above us, uh, dust being kicked up all over the place. So Amos runs back in. He says, holy cow, we're being set up. I said, yes, we are. Let's get out of here. We ran back into the building. <laughs> that, was, that was how wonderful that, that was mishandled by the police department. Um, it, it was a total joke, but but my job was to um, mix it up with the employees and 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 let it be known if anything was going on, I was up for it. Whether it was stealing, whether it was drug use, whether it was gambling, um, and uh, after six, eight, ten, twelve weeks in a place, you can pretty much tell what's going on, and uh, you report it back to the client company, and then they decide what to do. So. There is a huge amount of that. It's, a, it's called industrial undercover, or, or basically it's undercover spying for client companies, and it's being done in almost all industries um, across the nation, and it's being done a lot. Um, kind of like undercover boss without the boss. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, uh, you know, it's costing people their jobs. In some cases, that's, that's the way it should be. But I also fear that a lot of undercover investigators aren't that experienced and they're pressured to come up with dirt and they sometimes exaggerate somebody taking a two-minute break. They put down as 15 minutes uh, and sometimes see A and C and then report B as well. So mm -hmm. I do think that uh, it's, it's not a very, uh, very uh, well-supervised uh, uh, operation. That, that's being describe, describe to us the, the biggest operation that you feel that you pulled off. Well, probably, uh, I would say probably the biggest one was for a rental company, a rent-a-car, rent-a-truck company. It was Hertz Truck Rental. And uh, I was working in the parts department, and the parts department manager was stealing parts and covering it by when they came in and did the the inventories the inventory people he noticed would just pick up boxes and shake them they wouldn't look inside to see the parts so he's putting rocks and nuts and bolts on the boxes take stealing the parts and selling them on the outside and uh, this was someone who'd been there for years uh, another one equivalent to that was a meat company and the meat company the, the, the owner's son-in-law was running the plant, and he was stealing meats and selling them to, wholesaling them outside to supermarkets and stuff. Jeez. And now we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in lost revenue. Um, another one was a very famous stone crab uh, restaurant in Miami Beach, in South Beach. They had a bar. About, uh, are we talking about Joe's, and not to mention that? Yeah, well, yeah, well, it might be a, that might be a good guess. Okay, keep going. But they they sometimes would have an hour or two hour wait in this bar. People would go to the bar, and 
and sitting at the bar, it was noticed that uh, sometimes the bartenders would reuse the same checks and put them into the register and ring it. It looked like they're ringing up the drinks. And then they'd put a cherry stem into the bottle next to the register. Well, to make a rather long story short, what was happening was they were putting checks into the register, but they were just reading the previous balance key. That would bring up the previous balance, but not put anything on the check. So they were reusing paid checks to people, putting the cash into the register, not actually re-ringing the check, and at the end of the night when they took out the cash that was tips, they'd counted the cherry stems, and each cherry step stem represented $2 or $4 or whatever. So that way they could remove that amount of money from the register and it's still balanced. Huh. Clever. Uh-huh. Taking notes, listeners? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. That's what you call silent partners, not of your choosing. First time I ate at that <laughs> restaurant, uh, I was with my dad, F. Lee Bailey, at the next table. Oh, oh cool, cool. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah it's, and you had uh, all these cherry place. stems right on the uh, table. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. I now I get it. Well, you know, uh, one of our f- former regulars on this show who has m- moved now to Florida is uh-huh. uh, Fred Wolfson, who actually trained more people on polygraphs than any other human being in the, in the universe. Right. And uh, I came to the same brilliant conclusion I think you did, and that is, that's a bunch of BS. You can beat those things. Well, you know, a scalpel in the hands of an inexperienced surgeon turns into a butcher's knife. Right. If you get a polygraph examiner who's experienced and well-trained, it, it has pretty good accuracy in that, in that case if the questions are constructed right and if the pretest interview is done right. But a lot of these courses, uh, polygraph schools, aren't very good, and they turn out some people who are pretty pedestrian examiners. And that t- and then, you know, all of a sudden now the percentage of accuracy, if it drops from 80% to 50%, Hell, you can you can flip a coin and get fifty percent. Mm-hmm. So, can you kind of describe how you know what's the accurate and best way of constructing those questions and what they kind of appear to be? Yeah, sure. Uh, you, it, everybody's nervous who takes a polygraph. So, what you need to establish on the chart is what their normal reaction is when you know they're telling the truth, when you know they're lying, and when you don't know. So you ask irrelevant questions, is your first name Bob, is today Tuesday, do you sometimes drink water, Um, is this the year 2018? Some of those questions are mixed in to see what their their reactions are when when, when you know the answer is correct. Then you ask them a question such as, have you ever told a lie to someone who trusts you? Believe it or not, most people say no. If they do, they might say, oh, well, yeah, my wife. Okay, other than your wife, have you ever told a lie to someone who trusts you? No. Now you have a question that you know they lied to, all right? The question that you then are having, the comparative questions and the relevant questions are, did you steal any or all of that missing $500? And the theory of polygraph is if somebody is lying, they will likely react stronger to the relevant question about the missing money than they will about whether they've ever told a lie to someone who trusts you. So you compare the reactions on the polygraph to the irrelevant, relevant questions. And um, 
and, and at that point in time, you, you render a decision as to whether you feel they are being deceptive or not deceptive. So you pretty well have a gotcha moment when you're looking at the results. Well, you, you, you do in many cases. Now, you got to remember, and I say this to groups of attorneys all the times when I'm giving addresses about polygraphs, I always start off saying there's only two types of people who can definitely beat a polygraph, a pathological liar and, a, and an attorney. <laughs> well, sometimes the same thing. <laughs> I usually get a laugh from that. At any rate, if someone actually believes they're Napoleon, they're going to pass a polygraph if you say, are you Napoleon? Right. So the, 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 the thing is, usually if somebody is psychotic, however, you will know that before they get to the polygraph uh, phase uh, because they're usually irrational and... And uh, obviously, if someone thinks they're Napoleon, there's probably something wrong with them. Duh. Uh, yeah. Then there's also, what was it we, uh, our, our pal Punch, the, uh, the gem heist uh, mastermind, was telling us a few weeks ago about uh, people uh, uh, working in the insurance companies who were also affiliated with the mob, authorizing payouts on things that they knew were bogus. And they would be, the FBI was giving them a polygraph tests of uh, insurance employees, and they would uh, beat it by something with putting a hard ball in their armpit. Uh, yeah. I yeah. don't know what, how that works, but apparently it did something. Well, the, the thing is, that what how that is still overcome by the polygraph is whether you put a tack in your shoe or you take a sedative or a ball under your arm or a cricket in your nose or whatever they want to do, the, the bottom line is that becomes your normal reaction when they know you're telling the truth on a question. So the, that, that pattern doesn't change. It might be muted, and if the examiner thinks somebody's purposely trying to beat the test, then they will conclude it and report that to the, to the client. And that doesn't speak well for somebody. Why are you trying to beat the test if you're, if you're truthful? So they, those, those types of things to beat the test aren't the way to beat a polygraph. I'll tell you how to beat a polygraph. Please do. Okay, and I'm, of course I'm going to definitely not be on the Christmas card list of the Polygraph Association after I do this, <laughs> but the, since you know that they're going to compare the relevant question against a control question, the control question being, have you ever told a lie to someone who trusts you, and you say no, when it comes to that question, exaggerate your response to it. Hold your breath, okay? Breathe harder. Um, that will now be a stronger reaction than the relevant question, did you steal any or all of the missing money? So now when they compare it, they're going to think, well, heck, this guy's more worried about whether he ever told a lie to someone who trusts you than he is about what he should be more worried about, which is, did you steal any or all the missing money? That's how you can beat a fairly inexperienced examiner. Back in the, in the day, did you and Segretti uh, uh, have to take polygraph? No. Uh, never did, never did. Uh, I was interrogated, or not interrogated, interviewed by the FBI, um, by the state's attorney in uh, in Miami, um, and but each time they would tell me, you know, you're not under oath, and the reason they would do that is they figured in order to get to the higher ups like the White House, they would try to get you to say what you normally wouldn't say or put you at ease uh, and what have you. I never fell for that. And, um, uh, but for the grand juries, the, the FBI's, the, uh, for in, in my case, the CIA in that, in that matter, and then later with the media, I had, uh, I had Bernstein and um, Woodward calling me uh, and, and others from the media trying to knock on my door and 
Um, COD. <laughs> open the door. What does that mean? Where's the COD? Oh, that means come on down. Our package. Package. So those guys would question you. Tell us about their questions and how you knew going in that uh, it was complete crap and they were trying to trap you. Well, I could, t you, I could tell they didn't know anything. All they knew is that my phone number showed up 51 times on Segretti's phone uh, list. Uh, other than that, they were a blank slate. So uh, a good interrogator who knows certain facts will use those to get you to think they know more than they do. They'll bluff you. And they couldn't do that. And uh, so they would, they would basically say, uh, did you... Did you do anything, any dirty tricks with, with Don Segretti? And I would say uh, I would decline to answer. Or uh, if it was over the phone, uh, what have you, I would say uh, I, 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 I know he's called my house, but I, don't, I didn't get involved in anything. Just be totally innocuous with it. And uh, uh, that's why when I went to the grand jury the first time, their questions were totally inspecific and totally general. You know, uh, what did you do between this date and that date, and what did you do between that date and this date? And um, and then when you have use immunity, you've got to say it. Yeah. Remind yeah. us. Remind us what what happened to you guys when this was said and done. Uh, well, I offered. You know, like I said during my testimony, I was contrite. I I, I knew it was stupid, and I, I I they could offer all the abuse on me they wanted because I deserved it. I, I was I made a real dumb mistake. It was six months in my life and 43 years ago, uh, but. I never did any of the scurrilous letters accusing anybody of sexual misconduct or fathering children out of wedlock, which got some other people involved uh, in trouble. I never broke into anything, burglarized. My, my, mine were stupid pranks, uh, dirty tricks, they, they, and I'm not minimizing them. They don't belong in a democratic election, and um, there's no place for it. But. Uh, Nothing really happened. I, uh, pardon me, I offered to follow up with the Watergate committee, and I sent them letters on ways to tighten the laws, the campaign laws on it. And um, I got a couple of nice form letters back from two of the senators, and that was it. Nobody seemed to care once the thing went away. So Now, uh, in watching the election since then, have you spotted uh, some dirty tricks going on? Well, there definitely were some dirty tricks going on. I know Ted Cruz, I think, in the Iowa caucuses, uh, there was a rumor floated apparently by one of his campaigners, and I may be wrong on this, but uh, that that um, uh, one of the candidates had dropped out. Ben, um, what was his name? Uh, the doctor. Oh, uh, yeah, Dr. Ben Carson. Name, yeah. ben Carson. Ben Carson had dropped out when, in fact, he had not. Just because he had gone to Florida doesn't mean he dropped out of the election. So they were trying to convince everybody to switch their votes from Carson uh, to, uh, to to Ted Cruz, which, which is, I mean, that's... Plus, there was a couple of mailings that went out that were very... that the uh, the Secretary of, of, of Elections for the state uh, said were dirty tricks and whatnot. And I can't remember the exact thing, but this has gone on since time... Um, Endless. It, 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 grazing, grazing over today. Today. Well, grazing over, grazing over today for sure. And, and I, I think the difference is that a lot of them, a lot of the past dirty tricks were calculated and were conspiracies. And I do include a chapter in the book about past elections all the way back to after George Washington. 
and, and mention specific incidents about it. But uh, I think this is the first time that that a president had actually come up with the idea and had had it funded surreptitiously and had his White House aides supervising it. So it definitely crossed over from being uh, harmless pranks to, uh, to, to injurious and destroyed the candidacy, or at least it aided the destruction of the candidacy of the frontrunner, Senator Muskie, back then, and helped uh, push the election of who they thought was the weakest candidate against Nixon in 72, which was George McGovern. So, Boy, talk about a little manipulation, manipulation of a free election. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Now we have Putin doing it. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, which occurred during the... Uh, during the Obama administration. Yeah. Well, well we, uh, we, we've barely scratched the surface here. We've got to have you back. Well, I'd be glad to have you, let you have my front and my back, actually. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Good night. Thank yeah, you. <laughs> drive you around the block. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> well, I, I will say that one thing I would like to plug, if you don't mind, is go that ahead. Uh, Dirty Trickster Corporate Spy is published by Strategic Media Books. Yep. It's not a self-published book, and it'll be available. It, it's, a, it's ready for pre-ordering now if you go to um, um, Amazon. Amazon.com or uh, Barnes and Noble. Uh, August one it comes out. It's over 400 pages. It's, uh, if I might say so, uh, modestly, and that's not one of my long suits, but it's very well written. Good. And <laughs> I think it's a fascinating book. We will have you. We will. We will have you back, sir. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. Dirty Trickster Corporate Spy from Strategic Media Books as our friend Ron Chepson. Better hey, uh, bro. Yeah. What's next? A magic bat out. I've been in the right place. But it must have been a wrong time. I done said the right thing, but it must have used the wrong line. I've been on the right trip, but it must have used the wrong car. Hit us in a bad place, and I wonder what it's good for. I've been in the right place, but it must have been a wrong time. My head is in a bad place, but it has such a good time. I've been running, trying to catch hung up in my mind. Security. Uh -huh. 